right, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Pensive Politics, Mr. Watson. I'm your host, Christian Watson. And today I have someone with me who I think is perhaps the most stalwart. I don't even want to say libertarian, even though he is very libertarian. He is the most stalwart American, true, true American politician that I think is in existence today. Mr. Glenn Jacobs, who was formerly known as the professional wrestler in Kane, an international world champion uh, who turned to politics and is now doing incredibly great work as the mayor of Knox County. Uh, I mean, this guy's libertarian bona fide age just run very deep. He has been very stalwart. The government has no position, no right, no moral authority to dictate to you the tenets of our lives. It is up to us. And the government simply exists to protect our rights. And he has been very consistent in that, in his governing techniques. And I really appreciate that. And so I hope to have a very important conversation with him today about the philosophy behind his ideas, about his career genesis and all that kind of stuff. But before I get into all that, Mr. Jacobs, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you for that introduction and i very much appreciate it i don't think that i live up to all that but uh, <laughs> I, I do try that's my goal yeah. so thank you very much we tend we, we tend to and that's actually a good thing because there are some folks especially in political office who do think that they are all that and more and they overestimate their importance and that just absolutely tarnishes any credibility they have but I can assure you from what I see from an outsider's perspective, you are absolutely all that and more. So I just want to thank you for coming on the show. It means a lot to me. And so I think you get asked this question a lot. So I'm going to try to phrase it in a unique way. Um, libertarianism. A lot of folks do not conceive of libertarianism as being magnetically attracted towards the world of professional wrestling or even towards the world of politics, but especially not professional wrestling. So there had to be a seed planted somewhere or something that you found that made you think, oh my, this is the truth. This is the ideology that I got to follow. This. A fire had to ignite in you somewhere. So if you could just tell me what brought you towards libertarianism, and as an adjunct to that question, you also mentioned that you were a, an interview, you, were, you liked Rothbard, you liked Mises, you liked these people who were very high academics, who most Americans don't even know of. <laughs> what, what brought you to the realization of them and how did that yeah. all intersect with your career path as a wrestler? Sure. And it's sad that a lot of Americans, you know, hear from people like Paul Krugman and other economists and have no idea who people like Mary Rothbard and Elizabeth von Mises are, uh, who are actually the greatest economists of the 20th century, in my opinion. Um, I had followed, a, I'd always been interested in government and politics. One of my earliest memories, for whatever reason, uh, is being in the backseat of our Volkswagen Dasher station wagon back when I was like five years old and driving alongside some power lines and my mom commenting on how terrible eminent domain was and people losing their property because the government confiscates it and takes it, right? Um, I don't know why that's one of the things I remember in my childhood, but but it is. My folks were kind of Goldwater conservatives. They were the, for that day back in, in, in the 70s, um, that, that was the legacy that Goldwater left before Reagan became president. Uh, there were still the people that really believed that um, government had a very limited role in our life and understood the destructive consequences when government got too big. When I got to college, of course, I was somewhat indoctrinated into the uh, leftist bias that we, uh, at that point in time, it wasn't nearly, I think, as 
prominent as it is now on campuses, but there were certainly still some. Uh, and then when I got out in the real world, it's like, man, this stuff literally doesn't work on for practical purposes. Um, as in WWE, we're independent contractors. So we pay our own quarterly taxes, withholding taxes, and do all that sort of thing. Uh, and that's a reality check as well. When someone actually has to write a check to the IRS as opposed to having uh, taxes pulled out of their, you know, their, their, uh, their paycheck, that's eye-opening because then you start thinking about, man, so I'm not getting any refund back from the government. I'm actually paying a lot of money in. And what do I get for all this money that I'm paying into the government? But in any case, um, I, I, I was kind of torn because I, I, I didn't know whether I was a conservative or a liberal. I knew I, actually I knew I wasn't a liberal uh, because I didn't agree with the most important thing to me was the economics and, and fiscal policies. But nevertheless, this is at kind of the height of the culture wars uh, that, that helped bring George W. Bush uh, to the presidency. And I didn't agree with a lot of that either. I'm like, I don't, as long as people aren't hurting anyone else, who cares what they do in their own personal life? Uh, and a friend of mine, actually one of the WWE guys, uh, stage name Val Venus, told me I sounded like a libertarian. And I literally was like, do not call me like names. Okay, that's not cool. Right? <laughs> I never heard the term libertarian before. So I started doing some research. And I decided that yeah, I was a libertarian. But I was what I would call an ad hoc libertarian. I, I agreed with libertarians on, on certain policies. And I think that's how many folks are with Republicans and Democrats in, in general, conservatives and liberals. We look at a policy and say, hey, we agree with that. We agree with the majority of policies that you guys are promoting. So that's what I think I am. Um, but then I realized that the libertarian philosophy went deeper than that. Uh, and I got, you know, discovered the, the non-aggression axiom and, the, the philosophy, the political and legal philosophy behind libertarianism. Uh, and that kind of opened up an entire world for me. And then I came across the term Austrian economics that a lot of the people that I, were, I actually, when, when I first read uh, Murray Rothbard, it wasn't economics. It was some of his political theory. Um, but I knew that he was an economist that was from the Austrian school. I kept on hearing about this Austrian school of economics. So I took the plunge. I never studied economics in college, never took a class in economics, but I took the plunge and I'm worried about, okay, you know, I have to learn all this math and all these equations and all these numbers. And lo and behold, there was, there were no numbers and there was no equations. And it was, it was a descriptive science talking about human action. And that made all the sense in the world to me. Uh, so I, I took a pretty deep dive into that as well. Uh, and, and that's, that's really it. I mean, it's been a, a decades-long process and a process I think I think that still goes on. Uh, you know, there are still things within libertarian circles that we don't necessarily agree on, and good arguments can be made on either side. Uh, so I think it's like everything else in life; it's still you know, we're, we're still all learning and developing. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, it, it's been fascinating to uh, to learn what I have and to meet so many of the people that I have and to be exposed to all these different viewpoints. And for me, there's also become a spiritual component to it. All right. Sorry. Back, uh, you, you were talking about how God is important to the libertarian ethos. Yeah, sure. I think um, when I look at my own journey and uh, spirituality has now played a part in this too, because um, the Bible says that 
humans are created in God's image. And I think what that means for me anyway, uh, is that we are granted free will. What separates us from animals is that we have the ability to think and make decisions and really to dominate nature. Um, when government becomes destructive of that free will, uh, it's actually uh, an affront to God. And then we see this in the writings of the founding fathers and before them uh, in the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson says that uh, when governments become abusive, people have a right and they have a duty to throw those governments off. And then of course, uh, uh, Jefferson's personal motto was rebellion against tyranny is obedience to God. And I think what that means is that when, when government becomes abusive to the point that we can really no longer exercise our free will, uh, then that's an affront to God because that was a gift that is given us as humans. Uh, so there's kind of a spiritual component now as well. And that's what I say when it's been a long journey, I, I didn't start thinking about that until just a few years ago. Um, and I think that's true for all of us, you know, is uh, if we're introspective, and look at libertarian philosophy, it is kind of, you know, you have certain things that are pillars and foundations and don't change, but it opens up a larger world. And in some cases, there ends up being more questions than there are answers. Oh, absolutely. And I think that any coherent understanding of libertarianism, and this is just my personal opinion, will include an affirmation of God. Because in my opinion, true libertarianism is predicated upon the idea, as you mentioned, of natural rights, that our rights are not something that comes from government, that it comes from either nature, as John Locke said, or John Locke said nature was God's instrument to help us and to push us forward into the world. So it comes from God in some senses. Although I do believe you can have a secular understanding of that, sure. but I don't think that it really works in the end. Uh, and it's interesting because a lot of individuals have this perverse conception that libertarians are these libertine um morality-hating, uh, socially sort of uh, repugnant individuals that don't really care about anything except their own uh, self-interest. And that, that is inherently a bad thing, apparently. So, you know, you are in uh, Tennessee, you're in Knox County. What has been the perception of libertarianism among your fellow political contemporaries, among the citizens? Have you ever had any questions about your moral convictions, about your ethical convictions? And uh, if so, sure. what have been the responses? Well, most of that does come from the left. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because here in Tennessee, at least in East Tennessee, I think people are inherently libertarian. They just don't know it. Uh, but you know, most people here are of the mind of just like me. It's like, I don't care what you do. Just don't force it on me. And, uh, you know, we're good. Um, a lot of it comes from, from the left, this idea that, yeah, you don't care about anyone um, and you only care about yourself. Um, as far as the, the libertine idea, I'm actually in my own personal life, I'm, I'm pretty socially conservative. Okay. I, you know, uh, I, I am, I, I, that's for me, it's what I believe, but I don't think government should be enforcing morality. And in fact, I don't trust government to enforce morality. I mean, do we really want Bill Clinton being the guy deciding what, you know, being our moral compass? Um, so I, I think that's destructive. And then also, I mean, yeah, we, we all do act in our own self-interest. We can't help it, but that's not a bad thing because what happens with the people on the left, they always think of monetary profit and they don't think about emotional spiritual uh and uh you know psychological rewards and 
individuals, human beings are empathetic creatures for the most part. Uh, so we like to help other people. That makes us feel good. And one of my problems, actually, when government gets into things like social welfare, is they do a horrible job. I mean, they just don't do a good job at it. And I realize that in many cases, people launch these programs out of compassion. But if we're to look at the results, they don't work very well. I mean, only like 25% of the money that goes to social welfare programs actually gets to the recipients. And unfortunately, what's happened is now we see generational welfare that has created dependency and has just destroyed families. That's And, and that was not the goal. But that's the result. And we would have been so much better off if we would allow people just to, to make their own decisions um, and also allow competition to take place. And if I don't like the charity that I'm giving money to or the church, I don't think they're doing a good job. I can take my money someplace else. And you would see that uh, these private charities and churches and, and uh, uh, community help organizations, uh, they, the community assistance organizations, they would do a lot better job than what government does. Uh, and so much of that money's wasted. But you know, in the end, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I think that's a horrible misconception. And certainly there are some libertarians that are like that. Um, but I think that most people, in, even in, within libertarian circles, aren't. And you know, it really comes down to, um, do we want a system that is based on the inherent threat of violence or do we want a system where people can do things out of their own free will? And I think that we would want the latter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even if we don't want it, it is conducive to our human nature to have That's that. That's very true. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it, off that point, what is your opinion of the sort of principal arguments against welfare? Because a lot of libertarians will say, well, it doesn't work, therefore it's inefficient, therefore we shouldn't have it. But for me, that doesn't go far enough because let's presume we can imagine a world where welfare does work. Does that all of a sudden make its conception and it itself something that we it is desirable? I'm not sure it does because I think that welfare itself assails a particular part of our humanity yes. that is essential for us to live independently and freely and individually, right? It binds you under a certain set of uh, criteria and circumstances and it reduces your ability to be the fullest kind of human being that you can be by putting your um, reliance on resources on someone else. And so I think that, you know, welfare programs, you know, people do get into rough spots. People do have things they struggle with. And I think that, you know, I don't mind personally unbundling help to those kind of people. Uh, I don't think you need to appropriate my own money or my own resources for those kind of people. I don't, that's just not, I think that's unjust. Um, but what do you think about the principled argument? Do you think that that is strong? Is it insensitive? Because I've heard a lot of folks say, well, Christian, that's quite insensitive. And I say, well, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but the truth is not always very easy to handle. <laughs> so what do you think of that? I absolutely agree with you. My wife uh, was a social worker for years. And that's what she saw. And she also unfortunately saw a system that um, incentivized remaining dependent on the system as opposed to uh, you know, getting out and, and being able to be independent of the system. I think it, I think it harms people uh, because in the end, you know, we all take pride in being somewhat independent uh, and being productive individuals. And instead, we shackle folks with this idea of you can't do things on your own. You can't be productive. And it also splinters society, frankly, because uh, 
when government does it and, and people are forced to participate in a system and they know their tax money is going to the system that they may not approve of, um, then they look upon the people who receive welfare, they look down on them as opposed to saying, you know, these are folks just like me. And as you said, in some cases that have fallen on hard times and, and that happens potentially to all of us, um, it, 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 they look upon folks um, with disrespect and, um, you know, it, I think I think that it really just harms society. I think it drives society apart instead of bringing us together. Um, so I think there's many different ways that social welfare is harmful. Of course, you know, folks will argue that corporate welfare is actually a much bigger issue than it is. Um, by the way, and of course, the thing is that libertarians will always get blamed for being proponents of of, of corporate welfare, and we're like, no. You know, we, we want a free market. We want a market where the government is simply there to protect property rights and enforce contracts. And that's really about it. Uh, and right. we don't have that in the U.S., uh, unfortunately. And sometimes, it's like sometimes as an elected official, you know, I'm forced into situations that I don't necessarily agree with. But it's almost like this is the reality of where we're at as a country. And I, and I wish that could all change. Uh, you know, we, I was on an interview yesterday talking about tax incentives and that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's like the, the reality is this is the system that's been set up and it yep. stinks. But we also have to try to compete as best we can, um, you know, and figure out ways to, to mitigate any damage that's done. Yeah, well, here in Georgia, where I am, you have an entire system built upon these sort of false notions of, you know, tax incentives and corporate welfare. And again, the argument is always, well, the movie industry comes here because it's cheap to produce here. I'm like, well, that's great. Why is it cheap to produce here? We give them tax credits, an obscene amount of tax credits, not just because taxes overall are cheap, which they are here in Georgia, but we give them, we subsidize their films. And that makes us accountable to them, which is why when the state legislature tried to pass the religious freedom law, all the studios said, nope, no religious freedom. If you do that, we will pull out. And almost a lot of politicians were kowtowing and bowing and crying and groveling. Oh, please don't pull out. We need you. This is the effect, in my opinion, of sort of efficiency arguments over principle arguments, over sort of rule arguments. I mean, if you simply buy by the rule, first of all, that the government is meant to do three functions, contracts, military defense, and things of that sort, a sort of night watchman state, you wouldn't have these problems in the first place. But people are so often bound by contingency, by circumstance, and they lose sight of that. They become strategicians and not actually people who believe in principles. I think that kind of sacrifices our credibility and sacrifices our Americanism on the altar of, you know, of, of getting ahead of expediency. And that disturbs me a lot. And so I have to ask you this, what do you think about the idea of voting because libertarian theorists for a very long time are, are conflicted. Some like Lysander Spooner will say, no, voting is bad. It's evil, it wills the state again. Others will say, no, maybe it's necessary for certain things. I mean, I'm conflicted. I don't feel passion for a lot of people elected office. I don't feel connected. I don't feel as if they understand the principles of America. And even if they don't share my paradigm, I don't, it, it's evident that they are not moved by conviction. They are moved by dollars. They are moved by whatever seems good in the moment. And when you have that kind of transient kind of politician, I can't handle that. No one who really believes in this country should be able to handle that. Again, we've, been, we've been conditioned to accept this. So do you think that voting 
could be necessarily a tool to ensure that liberty is restored to America or continues to be preserved in areas of America? Or is it a tool to break our backs with um, people who are concerned with expediency and not principles? I look at voting in many cases as self-defense. And uh, the actual act of voting, and you know, I've seen all these arguments, um, and, and yeah, both sides present good arguments, but the actual act is not immoral itself. Uh, you know, you're in many cases, like when I vote, I try to vote for the people that I believe um, will essentially uh, use the least government force possible uh, in the world that we live in. Um, so that's that's kind of how I look at it. Um, I never wanted to run for elected office. And uh, I guess it was in 2012 uh, when Ron Paul was running for president the second time and the Republican National Convention literally blackballed his, uh, his electors, um, you know, just treated him terribly. Um, they wouldn't even let him speak at the convention, wouldn't even let his electors into the convention. And I mean, I was done at that point. So I was like, there's no way, there's, there's just no way. Okay, I because that. everybody knew Ron wasn't going to win, and they still just like put the boots to him, right? Um, but I was, uh, I was, I was on an, another podcast with a pretty prominent libertarian, and uh, they said, the, you know, that that's and 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 that's uh, that's valid, right? But also, uh, unless we get you know millions of Americans to withdraw their consent from the federal government or the state and local governments, it's not realistic to think that's going right. to happen. Um, so, uh, you know, for me anyway, that's that's kind of how I look at it. It really is a self de self-defense um, mechanism. And uh, I think that we can promote liberty. Um, and we have to realize too, though, you know, again, you know, often we ask elected officials like Rand Paul get a lot of criticism in purely libertarian circles about what he does. He's operating within a system that's not libertarian, okay? And he's trying to, to push it towards that way. And I think that's how we have to look at it is I think sometimes libertarians get caught up in, and, and I've been there too, you know, get caught up in this. This is, this is how the world should be. That's not how the world is, okay? Um, and sometimes you have to make strategic decisions to try to push the world in that way. Sometimes they don't, and sometimes you feel a little bit dirty. Um, but unfortunately, that's the world that we live in. Yeah, no, no. And, and, and that's, we should understand that. We should get that if we're going to make any kind of push towards anything, any kind of plan. Um, speaking of this, though, of the world we live in, the coronavirus pandemic has rattled the minds and spirits of many individuals in America. And I would say that it, that the, the infection of our minds has been greater than the infection of our bodies in a sense, um, because the infection of our bodies, we have a vaccine on coming on the way in the next few weeks. Some areas of the world already have the vaccine right now, Britain does. Um, and so we, we're, we're treating the infection of the body. We're, we're fortifying our bodily constitution, but our minds, we are still in a perpetual state of fear in America and a perpetual state of subservience to the experts, the public health people. Uh, and so my question is, you have been very stalwart about the government's proper role, the government's intended uh, duties, that you were the lone vote in the Board of Health's decision not to mandate masks. And you got a lot of pushback for that. Um, I, you, I'm sure you saw the, the very terrible, sarcastic comments in, on the internet or whatever. Um, but 
what reaction did you get, A, from your political peers for voting against something that allegedly saves lives, even though I highly doubt that. And if, even if it does save lives, it violates rights. And we have to understand that rights, if you, if you violate rights, you are rendering life obsolete. People don't get that. So you get short-term gain never ever satisfies the fact that you rights are absolute. Rights are the ultimate guarantor of, of life. That's one of you know the, the rights of, of libertarianism is life. Um, so that's one thing. What was your with the reaction in two? How have the people of Knox County responded to the coronavirus pandemic? Are they, are they, I don't want to say, are, are they being responsible or are they socially distancing or whatever, or are they more so calculating risk, which is also responsible to calculating risk and proceeding forth with understanding of the limitations that that risk calculation provided them? What is your read on that kind of thing? When it comes to the mask mandate, uh, again, I think we're, we're probably a little bit different here than a lot of places around the country. And uh, I didn't get as much flack. I didn't catch as much flack locally as it did from people. You know, that's part of the issue that we face now is with social media. Of course, everybody can throw something up there. And uh, folks think it's God honest truth instead of realizing that we're really letting like less than 1% of the population um, determine our opinions. Uh, and I always try to keep that in mind. But locally, it was, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of elected officials actually who um, understand and, and, and get, get things. Uh, they don't always speak out in some cases, because there's no point in speaking out because they don't have any ability to change things. Um, but I had a lot of people, I had a lot of people say that they they hated me, but I also had a lot of people uh, say that they really appreciated me standing up. And some people, even if they didn't agree with what I did, still appreciated me being honest um, about, about that. Um, for your second question, you know, it's a mixture uh, here. And you have people that, um, you know, are very much, uh, you know, very much everybody, if, if you don't wear a mask, I'm going to scream and yell at you and, you know, uh, all those sort of things. And you have a lot of people that are, uh, you know, pretty laid back about it. Um, so I, I don't, I don't have a great feel over the whole thing. I think that, um, I think that people actually uh, voluntarily do what they're asked to do. And that, that's the difference. And I, I think that's what folks don't understand between a mandate and a recommendation. And even here, when we have this mandate, we're not arresting people, we're not citing people. Okay. I mean, and the Board of Health made that pretty clear too. I mean, you know, this is, you know, their thought was that a mandate suggests strong, stronger than a recommendation. Okay. Um, and they felt that people, if it's just, if it's a recommendation, people were going to, you know, just ignore it. And also the media covers it differently. Um, but nevertheless, you know, when, when you have a mandate, you aren't asking people to do something. You're demanding that they do it, okay? And that's the real difference. And it drives me nuts when people say, well, we're just asking. So, no, you're not asking. You're saying you will do this or else. Uh, and the or else could potentially come with penalties. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the real issue. Uh, and I agree with you, too. When I look at, you know, there's there's much more to this uh, and don't get me wrong the, the 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 effects of the pandemic have been terrible okay um, i think we all know that um but there are other things we have to consider uh you know the mental health uh suicides are going up 
uh, drug usage is extremely high. We're seeing a huge spike in drug-related deaths. Um, you know, just all these various societal factors that uh, a lot of it is driven by just, I think, this uh, desperation and hopelessness that the media, I think, has really pushed with the pandemic. Some of it is, uh, especially in states where we're, we're, we're a lot better here, but in states that have gone back to shutting down their economies, I mean, what do you think is going to happen when people lose their jobs, lose their businesses, can't provide for the families anymore? They're going to become desperate, and that's not going to be a good situation. I think it, I, th I think this second shutdown is the worst thing that we could possibly do, uh, and I think it's going to have extremely bad outcomes. And I think that when history looks back on this from, from a scientific uh, standpoint, uh, leaving aside all the other stuff, um, they're going to say, man, you know, a vaccine was developed in a matter of months. It used to take years uh, because of modern medicine uh, and treatments and because of good hygiene practices and all those sort of things. Uh, you know, in the past, this would have literally killed millions and millions and millions and millions of people. And it's a tragedy that anyone would die. But, you know, compared to what we've seen in the past, um, because of technology, because of advancements, um, you know, the the death rate, although terrible, uh, is nothing compared to what it would have been if this had happened 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, you could argue that because of technology, it spread faster. Um, but, you know, I, I think that we don't give our medical professionals enough credit in that area. Um, and certainly, despite what people might want to say about Donald Trump, you know, they promised a vaccine and they got a vaccine very quickly. Uh, it, it, for, you know, and, and again, you know, I don't know, if, you know, government doing that. Um, I'm pensive about that, but it was a public private partnership <laughs> that, you know, that, that worked in this case, uh, Trump won't get credit for that. Um, but that he did. it. Uh, so I think there's many different levels here of, um, you know, when we're looking at that, uh, I am troubled by the fact that people, um, you know, there, there's common sense things. I think that all of us agree that we can do, um, not so much here, but when I look around the country and I think what's happening in say California, I'm just blown away that people would even put up with that. Right. You know? The church and, is and everything. I'm, yep. I'm also blown away that blown away by the hypocrisy of elected officials who, you know, preach one thing. And then, I mean, I wear a mask. I'm with you. I don't, you know, I don't know about the mask, but it's a government mandate. And if other people have to do it, I'm going to do it too, you know, and, and that's just the way that it is. Um, and here I am, the person that voted against it, but I follow it. But then you look around the country and people that are really, really pushing it don't follow it because it's like, well, we don't have to because you have the, you know, we're not one of the peons down there that's, you know, that's uh, causing all the problems. And I, I, I think that, too, is going to have some really bad outcomes. I think people are going to get tired of that and, you know, uh, they're going to they're going to uh, tell these politicians, you know, we're not going to listen to you anymore. And that's probably not good either frankly. So it's right, a very, right. very complex situation. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's very multifaceted. It cannot be boiled down. I'm reminded by a quote from Frederick Bastiat, who I am sure you are eminently familiar with. He said that if when everyone has an interest in the law, the law becomes tainted with its with an improper purpose and the improper purposes breed improper conduct. <laughs> and so I think that's precisely what you're seeing. You're seeing the manifestation of the of the um, deviation from the proper purpose of our government, of our laws, and that is being manifested through our elected leaders in some pretty egregious ways. I, I think um, I think 
I think the core principle here is this idea that government can stop a virus right. and that government can overrule nature. And we've done that with the economy and now we're doing it with, uh, with the pandemic. Uh, government can do certain things, um, but we also have to realize that in the end, this is nature at work. Um, and, you know, I mean, recommendations by public health officials, that's one thing. But when we start doing things that are destructive in other areas, that's something completely different. Yes. Um, and, and that's what I think what people should keep in mind is, you know, government doesn't have the magical power to suddenly just change nature. Nature does what nature does, whether we like it or not. And we all have to accept that. And I think that, again, this kind of goes back to, you know, we, we do the same thing with the economy. Okay, you know, we act like um, government can just overrule economic laws. And then when when it can't, people are surprised. And so I, I think it's actually from a philosophical standpoint, it's a bigger question. Uh, it's this idea that folks have really just determined that government is omnipotent and can do all these things that it can't possibly do. Right. It can't. No. So I, I, I'm going to ask one more question. I respect your time. I appreciate you being on the show again. It's very, very nice to have you on. Um, one more question. A lot of times you're going to hear the term conservatism used in conjunction with libertarianism. I describe myself as a sort of right-leaning uh, libertarian, conservatarian kind of. Uh, uh, some people say libertarian conservative or whatever. Uh, and for me, that simply means that I want to conserve and preserve certain things in my own personal life and certain things in the American experiment, such as the, um, the sentiments um, echoed through um, Congress by Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and then, you know, but also I want to temper that conservatism against the excesses of moralism and of the uh, ardent evangelism that could translate into government action that we saw during the Red Scare, that we saw during the 90s with obscenity laws, that we saw, you know, um, with uh, all kind of other, you know, anti-video game lawsuits. I want to skew that kind of stuff and get over to having people be as not interfered with as possible. That's what it means for me. In your opinion, what does that mean? This is the last question. <laughs> that actually pretty much encapsulates how I feel too. Uh, I would consider myself a libertarian conservative, you know, conservatarian, whatever you call it. Um, I, I do believe that this country, you know, this country's imperfect, we all know that. We have, we have flaws, um, but I also think it's the greatest country the world's ever seen because it was based on the ideas, at least to some extent, of individual liberty. And uh, that's where the conservative side of me comes out. That's worth conserving. The ideas in the Declaration of Independence are worth conserving, okay? Um, because they're libertarian ideas. I mean, the enunciation of natural rights in the Declaration of Independence, I think is the most important political statements ever made in the history of the world. Uh, and you know, that, that's just, that's worth keeping around. Um, so I absolutely agree with you that, uh, you know, and I, and I have friends that are like leftist libertarians and, you know, in some cases I just shake my head because I'm like, oh, you, guys, <laughs> you guys don't get it, okay? Um, and but yeah, I mean, I, I can't say it any better than you just did. And that's exactly where I'm at as well. Well, Miss, uh, Mr. Jacobs, I am so appreciative. I have so many more questions to ask you, but I know you got to get going. I hope you come back on the show. And thank you for uh, saying pensive as well. We don't hear that word very often. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But I appreciate it. I, uh, thank you so much. Do you have any final things you'd like to say, uh, Mr. Jacobs? Well, we um, I just, it's because of, of folks like you and young people um, that 
give me hope. Um, you know, I, I actually got into politics because I've, I've lived a remarkable life. I mean, uh, I grew up on a farm in Northeast Missouri and never should have had the, never should have been able to do these amazing things in my life that I've been very blessed uh, to have done. And I believe that the reason is because I grew up and I live in America and you, you get like that. And almost everybody gets these opportunities. That doesn't mean everybody's going to succeed on a grand scale, but we all have the opportunity, okay? Whether you wanna be a professional wrestler or anything else, you can do that in America. Uh, and again, you know, that's something that's, that's worth conserving. That's something that's worth fighting for. Um, and I think that some of us have forgotten that. You know, so I'm, it's wonderful to see younger folks who uh, are who are willing uh, in whatever way, whether it's a podcast and uh, you know uh, disseminating the ideas, or whether it's in politics or anything else. But it's great to see young people that are fighting uh, to keep the American dream intact. So my I really applaud you for that. I that's the highest compliment. It's truly. I mean, uh, wow. Uh, I can't, I can't say any better than that. So thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it uh, for coming on. I hope that you come on again. I really, really enjoy this conversation. Um, and everyone else, thank you so much for watching. And as always, please stay pensive.